Hi, this is Maya, and I'm co-host of the Cicada Story Slam with Annie Stewart. We um, set the podcast in a small town in Victoria, Australia, called Dalesford, where we have lots of progressive-thinking people, open-minded community. We run the Cicada Story Slam every third Thursday of the month at a local pub, and we have wonderful stories to share from our small town. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. So for those who don't know me, my name's Annie Stewart and I'm a storyteller. And one month ago, I was doing the cicada and I waved goodbye, everybody, as I headed off to America for a great big national storytelling summit. And boy, did I learn a few things on the way. And I'll tell you a few of them as we head on tonight. But last year, Maya Irel, who's organised this, and I had this crazy idea. We said, have you heard of the moth? It's where people tell personal stories. It's really big in America. And we said, that sounds like a great idea. So we talked to our mates at the community radio here in Dalesford and other people like Anthony and many more. Jared, I think, was here, who were going to help us record the story so we could play them back on podcasts and on Facebook. And then one of the reasons it really got us motivated was when all that money was wasted on Live Love Live. Sorry, I harp on about it. But it is crucial to the story because as we were moving around the themes, the one came up for our big words in winter was the theme life. But we got some funding from uh, the Victorian government, Regional Arts Victoria. We got a little bit of a grant and we started it up. And when we said, well, we've done it now, we did our year, everyone said, no, keep doing it. We want to hear more. So while I was in the States at the National Storytelling Summit, the keynote speaker was George Green, who was the founder of The Moth. (laughs) So I'm riddled with guilt that I've stole everything off his website. I run workshops saying uh, tips and tricks from The Moth. So I went and introduced myself, as you do, and I told him about our little cicada here in Dalesford, and he was quite happy that we were going along with it. He sent his love to everybody, because God is my witness. (laughs) And so here we are again tonight. We found it such a wonderful and engaging thing to do because we get to know more about our community. So we've got a strict hour, so without further ado, who's on the top of the list there, Leo? Can you read out? or? Nikki, please come to the stage. So, have you ever, um, have you ever tried to challenge airport security in a foreign country? It is not easy, especially given the high level of regulation and coupled with the billions and billions of dollars spent by people, by countries all around the world every year. However. On one particular occasion, I felt compelled to pit myself against that Goliath of a global industry. And that's the story I want to tell you tonight. Several years ago, Petrus and I travelled to Greece to visit respective friends in Athens and in Crete. We coincided our visit with, with Orthodox Easter. On Easter Friday, my friend Steph and I decided to join with thousands of other Athenians for the candlelight procession. We decided to join the procession at Lykavitos, a tall hill in the centre of Athens. And Lykavitos literally means the place that is walked by wolves. And legend has it that the howl of, of the wolf is like a prayer. So Steph and I, up and up and up, we climbed to the top of that hill and arrived just as the priest and the parishioners were coming out of that chapel um, carrying the patafio or the coffin of Christ, Christ, and the coffin was decorated with fresh flowers. We lit our candles from others in the group and joined the procession around and around Likavitos. There was a powerful sense of community and of togetherness in that gathering. And there was an atmosphere of communal mourning that I will always remember. On the night before we flew home, we had dinner with Steph and her mum. We were full of stories of our recent trip to Crete, 
of villages nestled in the mountains, of hospitality and the kindness of strangers, and of ancient olive groves. And our stories triggered Jenny's memories of growing up in the village, of the harvest, and of pressing the olives for oil. And just as we were walking out the door, Jenny handed me a bottle of olive oil. Take this home, she said, so that every time you use this oil, you will remember this special trip to Greece. There were tears in my eyes, and that bottle of olive oil was from the village that she grew up in. There were tears in my eyes when I hugged her goodbye and thanked her for her precious gift and promised that every time I used that oil, I would remember her and Steph and our wonderful adventures in Greece. But just as I was turning out the door, I said, I hope they'll let me take this olive oil on the plane. Oh, said Jenny, you're in Greece. Everyone knows olive oil in Greece. Everyone takes olive oil back to Australia. So buoyed by her confidence, I walked, we walked out the door. We were up early the next morning and I wrapped that bottle of olive oil in two tea towels, one to protect it from knocks and the other like an invisible shield and I placed it in my hand luggage. We arrived at the airport, we checked in, went through passport control, but the closer we got to the airport security, the more I could feel my anxiety rising. The more I heard this voice in my head saying, oh, Nikki, you are going to have to use all your powers of persuasion to get this onto the plane. I placed my backpack on the conveyor belt, walked through the big security arch and arrived on the other side just in, in, just in time to see the x-ray of my bag. And clearly, the invisible shield had not worked. <laughs> the security guard took my bag, called me over. What's in the bottle? I unzipped the bag, took it out and said, it's olive oil. It was given to me late last night to take back to Australia shook his head. I couldn't put it in my checked-in luggage. Imagine if that bottle had broken and spilt all over my luggage and everybody else's. Shook his head. So I took, took, took the lid off the bottle, I smelt it, I put some in my hand, I licked it, I said, it's olive oil, there's nothing dangerous about this at all. Look, smell, taste. In the meantime, I can see the supervisor heading our way. What's the problem, he says. I said, I went through the same story again and again. No, he said, you can't take it. It's against the regulations. Well, the regulations are an ass, I said. This is olive oil. There is nothing dangerous about this at all. Again, he shook his head. And then I remembered Jenny's line, Jenny's words just as we walked out the door. I said, we're in Greece. This is olive oil. Everyone knows olive oil in Greece. Everyone takes olive oil back to Australia. There was a wry smile that went, crept across his face, but again, he shook his head. And I realized I was hitting my head against a brick wall. So with a deep sigh, I said, okay, well, if I can't take this olive oil back to Australia, I'd like to give it to you. Take it home. It's the most beautiful olive oil. It's precious. Please enjoy it with your family. He shook his head and said, I'm sorry we're not allowed to take anything home from the airport. And I said, but that's ridiculous. It was given to me as a present. I'm giving it to you. Again, he shook his head. Well, what's going to happen to it, I said. It'll have to go in the bin. And at that stage, I had no further words for the level of exasperation. I just couldn't believe it. So, with a heavy heart, I reluctantly relinquished that bottle of olive oil. And I should say, while that was all happening, Petrus was on the other side of security, looking at me as if to say, oh my God, I'm gonna to have to visit this woman in an, in an Athens prison. <laughs> so I reluctantly relinquished that bottle of olive oil. But there was a kindness in the supervisor's eyes, eyes that told what words couldn't say. Eyes that said, I know there's nothing dangerous in this bottle, but my hands are tied. So I've been thinking about a title for this story. And the theme for the words in winter is life. And that within the Easter story, there's life and there's death and there's resurrection. 
and um, sorry, I've got my train of thought. Um, yes, so there's life and there's death and there's a resurrection. And I remember, um, I remember Easter that Easter Friday at Likavitos, the place that is walked by wolves. And I remember that candle-like vigil. And I remember the atmosphere of communal mourning. And I remember that decorated pitafiu. And it's from the Greek word pitafiu that our English word epitaph comes from. So I want to use the word epitaph in the title. There's the epitaph to olive oil, my own personal grieving for not being able to honour that precious gift from Jenny. But there's another epitaph, and that's more about communal, communal mourning. And that's the epitaph to common sense. Because what I experienced at the airport was nonsense. And I keep asking myself, how is it possible that oil from the fruit of the olive branch, that universal symbol of peace and forgiveness, how is it possible that olive oil has become conflated with something designed to cause harm? So whilst there may be words on that epitaph to olive oil, there are no words on that epitaph to common sense. There are only sounds. Sounds like the mournful howl of a pack of wolves that once roamed Likavitos. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. As always, another thoughtful story. I love it. And coming to Common Sense, if there's time for me, I want to tell you a little bit about Common Sense. It may feature geese. Don't get upset. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Don. You've put the pressure on me, Nikki. I know I think I might change my story to tell you about what happens when you're flying just a Hobart and your hips fire off the alarm. Uh, I ended up in my underpants in front of, in front of a gun-wielding uh, security guard to show them, look, there's the scars. But uh, on life, I'm uh, well over my three score and ten, but it hasn't taught me anything that I can inform you about tonight. I assure you even children have as good a uh, knowledge of life as I have anyway. I, I Look, I played uh, involved in poor levels of football for 17 winters of my life and uh, was at the end of the 17 years I was still not much good at it. Uh, and uh, uh, making love, the same kind of thing. Played it <laughs> hundreds of times, but was never got any better. <laughs> it, uh, life, I know that I had a good knowledge of life when I was a kid. My mother uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was six and just uh, died one morning while my father was having a shave when I was 12. And so I uh, had thought about life, but I'm not going to talk about the absence of life and death and all that kind of thing. I, By the time I was about 15, I decided that the life was what I was going to make of it. And, uh, you know, the, the things that I liked made me feel good. And uh, that was what I started chasing. And uh, by the time I got to uni, 19, uh, called up and all that, uh, we used to discuss in, in Phil 1, I hope there is somebody else here who did Phil 1, because of great experience 
discussing, Phil, what happens if you remove the sight of something, the smell of something, the touch of something, does it still exist, you know? And uh, all of all of the hours that we spent discussing that kind of thing, modern science has passed it all by. And whether or not uh, life is is there, is and not there, is now something that is far different from what it was in 1965. Now, I decided, as I've already said, that the things about life that made me feel good were the good things. And uh, I also, at about, about the time I was at uni, started following the fabulous Muhammad Ali. And in there was a famous fight where Muhammad came back from being banned for opposing Vietnam and he hadn't fought for years. Come back to fight uh, a guy called George Foreman who was the, the heavyweight champion of the world. And uh, I can always remember during that fight, Foreman was a huge guy, bigger than Ali, and was swinging these big punches and it looked as if he was going to kill the older guy. But uh, about the sixth or seventh round, Foreman was tired just through punching. And what happens is as one guy's getting beaten, he kind of looks smaller. And the guy who's getting on top looks bigger. And by the ninth round, when Ali finally knocked him out, you would think this is a mismatch. Ali's about three stone heavier than this guy. Wasn't true. So I, I decided then that as well as, as thinking that I've got to concentrate on the parts of life that I like, I, I had some justification that life, when you are living it well, made you feel bigger. And uh, you know, I, if you couple that with this idea that your life is is the flat bit on a roll of paper, if you if you have a roll of paper and you try and get it the flat bit in the middle, the past is rolling up behind you and the, the future is rolling out in front of you. And I thought that's what I want to be, or concentrate on the flat bit in the middle and try and, try and make things good enough to make me feel bigger. Now, I, lots of things make people feel bigger. I've got a great mate who I haven't seen for some time and uh, went to his place and uh, he'd always collected things, but he got there and Dougie is determined to show me his dropper collection. Now a dropper is a thing that goes on the fence to hold the wires apart. <laughs> I don't know if you... And it's a usually a piece of wood with about six holes in it and Dougie's got a collection. He's got, he's got hundreds of these things. I didn't realise that you could make them out of aluminium metal and I suppose I guessed you could make them out of plastic but Dougie reckoned they weren't much good. He, he was able to put all of these droppers into their historical context and their, their agricultural efficiency rating and all that kind of thing. But when, and, and I was terribly impressed really. But as we were going away, I said to my wife, geez, Dougie really likes those droppers, doesn't he? And uh, she said, Dougie needs to get a life. <laughs> and and uh, that might be where I have to end. But getting a life can mean lots of different things. <laughs> Thank you.
So getting a life is what it's all about. Thank you, Don, for that. <laughs> Just a reminder for those people that haven't been coming to the Cicada, Don's with the Agricultural... Uh, what do we call show it? Society. The Show Society. And he said, Annie, come and do some storytelling. I said, no, 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 no. So we are planning to have Dalesford's Got Talent at the show and there will be fabulous prizes. Uh, Maya, you're good at getting prizes. <laughs> but mostly it's for the school kids. And I saw the principal of Dalesford Primary down the back before. Shame he's gone because I would have put it right on him. <laughs> anyway, our next storyteller, Leah. Yes, we did at the beginning, but the bell goes at five minutes. That's your little warning, then you got a bell at six. And hidden in the audience are anonymous judges, so that you can't go mad at them, that will announce a winner tonight. So, we give you five minutes, and as we said, we've only got an hour, so we're hoping people keep to time. You might have heard Zane if you were here for the last session with his rainbow poem, but now he's got a story about life. Yay. Something like that. Can I this out again? Okay. Easy with the straw. What is your remote? That food looks pretty good. I live in a very complicated love affair, which has gone on for my whole life. You see what I did there? <laughs> my lover is sweet, sometimes warm, sometimes selfish, sometimes abusive. As I said, it's, uh, it's complicated. It's gone on for many years. It started when I was a kid. It was an innocent infatuation uh, of a cereal variety. It started with wheat bix. It was crushed wheat bix. So you have one layer of crushed wheat bix and some brown sugar, another layer of crushed wheat bix and some brown sugar, and another layer of crushed wheat bix and brown sugar on top. And then you put the milk in the microwave, 30 seconds, you bring it out, you take the skin off the milk, and you put that on the mic on the wheat bix, and it's just perfect. And that was where it all started. And the first years of our relationship were really good, you know, we were getting to know each other. I was learning about all these different smells and textures and flavours. And then I started to learn about all these different things like ritual. We had date nights, you know. Friday night was always fish and chips. Uh, Sunday is always a roast. And we'd have celebrations. We'd eat cake when it was someone's birthday. Uh, all these wonderful different things. Um, I still remember some good times. I remember the first time I ever had health food was at Sovereign Hill. Uh, and I had uh, celery and brown bread and peanut butter. And I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is all right. It's, ha it's healthy. I also remember the first time I had uh, junk food, um, cheap thrills. Uh, I was in McDonald's on Howard Street. And I had a Happy Meal. And the toy at that time was a little red football. And the Mighty Ducks had just come out. Uh, so I was sitting in, on the bench at McDonald's uh, on Howard Street eating my Happy Meal. And I can remember the smells and the flavors. <gasps> and uh, We Are The Champions was playing on the radio, Mighty Ducks song. And I really did feel like a champion. Um, and they were good times. I got to learn what I liked. Uh, milkshakes, milkshakes, particularly the milkshakes in the metal cup where the condensation is on the outside. I get so angry if they don't give you the metal cup. Uh, many, many things. Ice cream, there's always room for ice cream. Pies, sausage rolls, dim sims. Love dim sims, right? And we got on really well. Food was, was my new and exciting lover. And then things progress on and you get into later life and this is where junk food started to kind of rear its ugly head again because as I started to become a teenager things got a bit stale you know in the relationship it got a little bit same same everything was always the same so we started role-playing uh, about 14 15 I played the stoned teenager and uh, all of a sudden my lover was so much tastier, the smells were so much more amazing, the colours are amazing, I was tasting things I'd never tasted before and I just wanted more and more and more and more and more. 
Uh, obviously, more is not always good, and so <coughs> turned into a bit of an abusive relationship. <laughs> I just get having more and more and more. And then I got a little bit older again, and uh, the uh, I started to turn away from someone or from a, a lover who had always been there for me, and I started to care less about what I was eating and more about what I was drinking. And it seemed that I was saving money on food to spend on drinks, and I was eating things that uh, yeah, were just not very exciting. Uh, one particular night, I had just moved to Melbourne, was trying to um, save some money. I didn't have a great deal, and uh, didn't have the gas on, so I cooked, uh, cooked sausages in the microwave, which is terrible. <laughs> It was unfair of me to blame the sausages. It was my fault for trying to cook them in the microwave. <laughs> and as life goes on, food has always been... Uh, we've had this kind of symbiotic relationship. <laughs> it's a funny thing to say, obviously. You have a symbiotic relationship with food. But <laughs> it kind of goes through all the motions with you, through all these different parts of life. And then I came out the other side of that to where I was sort of... 20, 21, 22, and all of a sudden I got right into fitness, you know? I was a personal trainer. Now food has performance-enhancing qualities. <laughs> this is stuff that I remember. All of a sudden I remember being a kid and eating baked beans and running out into the front yard, and mum, was, mum told me that baked beans make you jump high. So I'd have a spoonful of baked beans, I'd run out into the front yard and I'd jump, and she'd be like, yeah, a bit higher. And I'd be like, all right, wait here. And I'd go, i have another spoonful, I'd come out and I'd do another jump. She's like, oh, it was higher. And I'd like, see, they're working. I knew it. <laughs> and that all came full circle. I got into the fitness industry, and now all of a sudden food was like this thing that it's not, it's not tasty anymore, and it has no meaning. It's just fuel, and you just got to eat as much meat as you can, and it's just chicken and white rice and broccoli. And if you eat all the chicken and all the white rice and all the broccoli, you're going to be the strongest person ever and you're never going to die. It's not true. <laughs> One day I'll be the healthiest dead guy. <laughs> and then you kind of keep going and, and that starts to, uh, uh, starts to waver a little bit as well. And I sort of realised that you know, that's not fraught, because now all of a sudden this thing that used to be really fun is not fun anymore. Why am I not having fun? And maybe it's the food's fault, so now I'm on this spiritual path, and I'm like, all right, well, now I can't eat meat because I'm eating spirits, and so <laughs> that's going to impact my spiritual journey. And all, all the way through life, I've had this kind of, wherever I've been at, food has kind of reflected back where I've been at. And I got to a certain point where I just, uh, you know, through different things, I started to feel like everything I was eating or everything that was in my field uh, was in some way bad for me. And it's what I started with saying that, you know, food is sometimes sweet and it's sometimes warm, sometimes abusive, sometimes selfish, but it really is nothing to do with the food. It's all about what you're bringing to it and what you put into it. And what I've realized now is that food is like the internet. It is a means for us to connect with each other and it's a means for us to connect to ourselves because you can look down at the plate and whatever you're thinking is really just a reflection of what you're feeling. Thank you so much, Zane. You have a talent for taking us on a little journey on the turn of a pin. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Which was one of the tricks they were sort of teaching us at the moth things in America, you know, what the stories are like, just on the turn of a pin. We now have one of our old favourites who's been with us from the very beginning. And the th lovely thing about this is we've got to know so much about them now. I'd like to ask Toby to come up and tell us a story. No, they've swapped positions. Toby now, today, is coming on as Stephanie, but then we heard stories like that about the, at the Slam too in America. The sex folklorist, but that's another story. Hey there. 
Toby's too good and I was too chicken, so I'm coming on first. Thanks, Toby. Um, I've had a whole month to think about life as a topic, as a theme, and uh, I kept thinking of death, and then I kept thinking of birth, and I could take you through seven pregnancies, but we won't go there. But we will go back to my birth, which is, uh, and some of people have heard this story before, or mixes of this story, um, but Petrus has given me liability to give myself permission to do it again. Uh, my first memory is of shadows. I can see my little toes. I can see the white inside, insert of the pram and the navy blue outside. I can see the trees and I can see the shadows dancing on my toes. So then I grew up in Dalesford and down at Shepherd's Flat um, and other things started to come from those trees, from those surroundings. Uh, not so many cicadas, but lots of locusts one year. Not so many rats, but lots of mice another year. Things started creeping into my world. But something that really stuck with me was moths. And moths were something that I was quite interested in as a child. They were there at some times in the seasons and gone for other times and I always wondered where they'd gone. Then lots of things uh, happened as you grow through childhood and teenage but then you start dating. Thank you. And for a while I was going out with a wee boy who was a Maori New Zealander and uh, we were just at his parents place in St Albans uh, one night and I was telling his mum that I hadn't slept for weeks. It just kept, every time I'd go to bed I would dream of moths and they weren't friendly so much, they weren't annoying me so much but there was a lot of them and I felt quite suffocated by a lot of moths. And uh, Rumo's father overheard me and Harry says, how long you been dreaming about moths? And I said, more than a month. He said, every night? I said, every night. Hmm. He went off to the phone. We continued our conversations in the kitchen. But that night, he'd arranged for one, two, three, four, five, six large Maori elders from all over Melbourne to come and sleep with me. So I lay in the middle, one, two, three on that side, and one, two, three on that side. And Harry was the only one I knew, but I didn't know whether I wanted to sleep next to my boyfriend's father. But anyway, I thought, I'm, this is never going to work. I don't know what they're doing. They're just like, oh, don't worry about it. Just go to sleep. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep. But I went to sleep. And I slept. Not one moth came. Not one moth came. And the next morning they get up, they have a big feed of whatever they decided that morning to do, probably a big feed on fish and mussels and everything else that they tended to eat from morning till night. Then off we went travelling around the world and came back home to Dalesford at times and life goes on. Then big things start to happen. People in your world start to pass away. My mum had cancer for two and a half years and um, at that time I was pregnant with my daughter and then had my daughter and then my mum passed away two weeks before my daughter was one. But the afternoon that she did, we didn't know, but all of the family had said, Mum, if you need to go, go. She was one of those, if I can smile and hold your hand, I'm staying. And we'd all given her permission to go. Um, but we found that months later. Anyway, the afternoon that my mum passed that evening, we were at the cottage at Wombat Park and there was a giant moth. It was as big as my face. It was ginger. It looked like a ginger cat, but it was a moth. And it was on the front door of the cottage. And I went, ah, this looked like something that if I researched it, I would never find. But I called Graham. Graham says, it's real. Okay, it's real. That night I get a call at two o'clock in the morning. My sisters and my dad were with my mum. I didn't need to be. And as the phone rang, I said, bye mum. And I went out to the front door and the moth was still in exactly the same place. And 
difficult, but we went back to sleep eventually, and by dawn, the moth was gone. Moving on years later, um, my gorgeous friend Brian, that I'd known from the high school, uh, one of those escaping a gang of people who wanted to pull my hair, and I bolted into room 13 and knocked him flat on the floor, and we became friends. He was 14 and I was 13, and he was my pal for a very long time. He was my rock. But he got cancer, and um, I nursed him for two years, and then uh, one night, Brian died. And I didn't want to be there at the point of death, but I'd come home to my little family, and I was breastfeeding at the time too. And then I went, I don't need to be there for Brian, but I really need to be there for his brother. So I think I'm gonna head off. I'm gonna go down and, and take off that morning and, and go over to his house, and we've taken him home. And when I got to the front gate, there was just in my headlights, and it is just on the point of dawn, and there was a giant, looked like black velvet moth. And as soon as I stepped out of the car, it was on the gate, and it ascended up and up and up and up until I couldn't see it anymore. And I said, hi, Brian. And Brian had passed away. So, oh, goody the bell. Um, so then life moves on, and your daughters grow, and uh, my daughter Juliet is not just turned nine, and uh, she's a bit of a science nut, and she was saying, Mum, I'm really interested in moths. Do you think we could find a dead one and put it underneath the micro microwave microscope? And I'm like, you're on your own. I, no. Anyway, she said, well, I've been thinking about life, and I've been thinking about death, and I've been thinking about your moth stories, and I wanted to see what a dead moth how alive it is in the inside. I'm like, oh, okay, she hasn't found a moth yet, so I'm in the clear. Um, but I, we started talking about birth and I, we started talking about coming tonight and I was like, uh, you know, do you remember when you were little and do you remember, you know, your birth and things? And she goes, oh, yeah, I remember seeing my tiny little toes and you know when the leaves come down and the shadows just bounce everywhere? I love watching that. I think that's the first thing I remember. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was so wonderful. We had a workshop at my place the other day, and Stephanie has such a wealth of stories from living here in Dallas for growing up as a young kid. She kept saying, I don't know if I've got a middle and beginning and an end, and I don't know if I can do it. But boy, you really pulled it off, and I'm so proud of you. <laughs> ah, now, young Toby, it's your turn. Are we all Australians in this room? No. Well, I won't alert Border Force if you won't tell them that I hate Aussie Rules football. Um, sorry, it's loud, wasn't it? Okay, Australians, we all know November 11th, Ned Kelly, such is life. We know it for other reasons too, of course, but for me, when I think about life, it's not November 11th, it's November 20th, I think of. Um, I had one set of plans when I was 26, but instead I met a girl in a train station and fell in love and three months later she was pregnant and we had a baby, my first child, my daughter, Juniper. And I remember when Felicity, her mother, rang me from Melbourne to say she'd been to the doctor and it was confirmed that she was pregnant. And I was here in Dalesford and it was night time and um, I, I, since I was a child I dreamt of having children. I used to say I wanted to have eight. If I was a rich man I would have had eight. But it cost a lot of money to have kids, and so I didn't end up having eight. But I remember that night I went down to the paddock, it was a full moon, and um, I sat there bawling my eyes out with joy, just overwhelming happiness, um, looking forward to this thing that I'd wanted since I was a child, and feeling so lucky 
and praying, because I pray, I'm somebody who prays, uh, that I could be, that I could somehow merit this. And um, my daughter was born. Uh, she was due on the 18th of November. She ended up <laughs> involving us in a 29-hour labour, uh, which came, which began at the end of a very long and tiring day. So really, it was more like her mother Felicity was awake for about 45, 46 hours in total. Um, and it was a difficult birth. And at a certain point, we ended up at Dalesford Hospital, and they said we can't do this, and they raced us from Dalesford to Ballarat in the middle of the biggest electrical storm in living memory. Um, in 19 minutes in the ambulance and uh, we got there and it was a terrible disaster and they took us into the wrong part of the building and there was, the nurses were yelling at the doctors and so on and it was chaos and then Dr. Ian K. Mays who's a kind of genius uh, uh, obstetrician gynecologist appeared at about four o'clock in the morning and when he came into the room in my head I thought the words the sun king and Felicity later on told me that when he came into the room, she thought, oh, sunshine. Both had the same thought. And he just relaxed and said, come on, it's okay, you can come now. Just bring that baby out. And Juniper was born. And that was November 20th. And it was bliss. I loved her. I still adore her. She's the most wonderful person. She's etheric, psychic, terrifying. Um, she, there's a strong streak of righteous anger that comes from her mother's side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> But it's combined with this fantastic ability to read people and, and to understand the soul. And I think it comes from the female line of my family. I could be wrong. But, um... Sorry, or not? Um, one, I'll, I'll keep going. One of the things I remember is sharing it with my... sharing all this information with my best friend, Adrian who I really loved. Uh, I'd met him when I was eight, and he was 10 years older, and he was the best male friend I've ever had in my life. Um, and his mother died. That wasn't me. Um, sorry, I'm just acting for it. His mother died a few days after Juniper was born, so we named her Juniper Ray after Ray Hamilton, Adrian's mother. And I used to share her growing up with him and then her mother and I split up, and um, that that wasn't good. And Adrian remained my friend, and I'd get together and we'd commiserate about various things. And time went by, November 20th, and Adrian, as he grew older, certain things became more and more apparent about him, but not really apparent until um, it was too late. In 2015, he suffered a very profound mental breakdown over the space of about a month and a half. Um, and I, we knew that something was coming up, uh, Anna, my present partner, and I knew that something was bad, and we tried to involve friends to support him and to visit him every day and to see what was going on, but we didn't quite understand the extent of it, and I was at work around the corner at celebrations when I got a phone call from Anna in a very emotional state saying, he's dead, he's dead, and I... I knew exactly who she meant, but I said, who? Because there was, it, instantly, there was this tiny hope that someone else, anyone else, was who she was talking about, which is not right, but that's what my brain did. It went, who? I just didn't want it to be him. She said, Adrian. And my legs collapsed. Uh, they didn't work. I fell on the ground, <laughs> and I couldn't stand up, which I've never had before. And um, a fellow I worked with picked me up, and I got sent home and people came around to my place and the police were there asking questions. Adrian had hanged himself. And um, I'd been planning to ring my daughter because it was November 20th. And uh, I didn't. I didn't ring her. And I didn't inform her for some time afterwards about it. And I didn't inform her about Uncle Adrian's funeral. Because... Um, it, was a, it was a great very quickly that I would do the eulogy. And I was terrified that I'd get it wrong. And I think psychologically I didn't ring her because I didn't want her to see that. I don't, that wasn't a conscious thing, but I think that's what it was. And now, 
when November 20th comes around, I have this extraordinary thing handed to me, which is this big, rich glass of wine that I love and I've been drinking every year for years, which is my daughter's birthday. And it's still beautiful. But in it, there's this other thing that's been put. And at first it was bile. It was just this great gob of bile that had been dropped into it. And as the years have gone by, I'm coming up in four years since Adrian died, um, I've been practicing the art of taking it and drinking it straight. That's what I'm trying to learn to do. And still to enjoy what's really good in it, but also understand that that other thing is in there. Um, because such is life. Thanks. Toby, that was amazing. I have a dream now, coming back from the States, we could have an international storytelling school and house and a whole festival here in Dalesford and I want you to be the professor of storytelling, mate. You're so cool and we always get such a part of your heart, mate, which I appreciate you sort of handing it out to us all like there. That was an amazing story, especially for those who know Adrian. That was amazing. Now, I think we're coming to the end of our time and when we have a lot of time, we might put it out there. So we would have enough if there was one brave person that might have a story left. But otherwise, it's not over because there's another session after me. Who, who said that? Me. Letitia. Thank you very much, braving it. Yeah, it's completely unprepared. Don't give it away, don't give that away. <laughs> Life is uh, delicate, fragile. And it's not always here for very long, because, um, oh God, have a moment here. Probably the being in this world that has loved me more than anything was a little cat. And um, love that cat. About three years ago, I went over to a friend's house to help build some garden beds. And we were digging dirt in the front garden in the main streets of Coburg. And my friend's wife was standing by the letterbox and she just went, oh my God. And I turned around, she's standing there holding this thing. And I thought it was a scrap of leather, a filthy, dirty scrap of leather from the gutter. And I said, my God, what is that? She said, it's a kitten. This kitten was three weeks old maybe, um, probably feral, dropped by its mother. It was limp, dead, inert, and um, it, it's covered in flies' eggs, so it was written off. Nature had just given up on this little furry thing. But it was still alive, and we took it into the kitchen, and we got some water and dripped some water into its mouth and we didn't really know what to do with it because it looked so dead, but it wasn't. And there was a vet on the corner and we raced it, jumped into the car, raced around to the vet and the vet just kind of looked at it and kind of up its teeth and just said, oh, do you want us to get rid of it for you? It's just, it's not going to happen. And we just looked at each other and we just went, no. We have to, we, no, we can't do that. So we got back in the car and I put this kitten on my breast and it couldn't lift, she couldn't even lift its head. And it just lay there and we bolted to coals as fast as we could. And my friend ran in and she got kitten milk and an eyedropper. And three or four eyedrops of milk and we sat there for five minutes, didn't want to overwhelm it, three or four drops of milk. And then we got in the car and started to drive home. We got about, you know, 30 seconds down the road. 
Okay, pull over, dropper, milk, dropper, <laughs> milk. And then this kitten, honestly, within the smallest amount of blood sugar in its system, found a roar. <laughs> and Mike, my husband, had been going, we need a kitten, we need a kitten, we need a kitten. Months, months, we got two cats, we need a kitten, we need another kitten. And I just thought, and I thought, oh man, you know, we're just like three cats and just, you know, so, okay, <laughs> we have a kitten. So, I didn't tell Mike what was going on, I just rang him up and because I was in the van and the van is just, you, you cannot bring a half, anyway, whole other story about the van. So I said, Mike, get over here, bring the car, come over here now and pick me up, you need to come. So he came and I have honestly never seen a look and by the time he got there, we had eyedropped this kitten was holding its head up like this. And um, he said, and he said, oh, what's that? And I said, it's your new kitten. And I said, but you know, don't get too excited because everybody thinks it's not going to make it. And uh, we took it to our vet the next day and said, well, it's looking all right. Feed it up, see what happens. Anyway, Skid, who skidded into life. Um, was the most insane ball of life I have. He was Roy. He was the Roy Batty of cats. He lived absolutely. He burned twice as brightly. But uh, almost a year ago today, not just a few days off from a year ago, he uh, got hit by a car on Hepburn Road. And sorry. But he was, he was wherever I was, he was right there. And he was as feral as all get out and he would <laughs> maul you. And he had what I called the crazy fuck face. He would just be like, feet, chew, bite, claw. And I remember looking at him the day before he died as he was trying to chew his way through the electrical cord on my computer. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I just said, oh, a death wish, you know, and I pulled him off the electrical cord and I just looked at him and I thought, how long are you going to live, mate? You just, you just, just slid into life. And in a funny kind of way, I felt like I'd made him late for his next appointment. <laughs> you know, but he, but the saddest thing and, and, the, and the happiest thing about it was our other cat, Pod, just from the moment when we got him, he was covered in ringworm. Mike washed him every day in antifungal for like months. We had him locked in a room. The other cat knew he was there. And he adored him. And when he died, Pod would sit just, we couldn't bear it. A week later, like Pod's sitting at the window, not eating. And if you know Pod, that's very serious. And we went and got another little kitten who is absolutely the light of our life has a little bit of skid spirit to her, but uh, never replaced skid. But we absolutely love her and adore her and we get so much joy out of her. So it's a tenuous, fragile thing and completely unrehearsed story, but we loved skid. Yeah. So. Another round of applause for all our storytellers. And thank you, Letitia. We've come to the end of our time and we don't want to go over because we know there's a whole lot of other things happening. So I ask that the judges, could you wave your hands if you're ready with, the, with, with a reply? Would somebody come up? If not, the story's sweet. So I've Mark Dickinson, who's a great mate down the back, give us a wave. Mark's bringing some of his writers here to share some of their work. Is that correct? Correct. That's happening at 8 o'clock, so hang around for that. If you've enjoyed our Story Slam, come along to the next one. It's on September the 19th, which happens to be Talk Like a Pirate Day. <laughs> so the theme will be Hidden Treasures. If you're not on our mailing list, Leah, give a wave, and Juanita, 
There's a sheet of paper down there. Please sign up so we can keep you posted with what happening. Once again, thank you all for the stories and... And the weekend of Words and Winter if anyone wants to come check it out. Check out everything that's happening for Words and Winter. We're so appreciative of our people that get up and tell a story. I'm just going to check the judges because their heads are down bowed to see who won tonight. We am an hour whether to announce a winner on these sort of nights because everybody's a winner, but somebody, sometimes it's just nice to give accolade for someone who's told a good story. Girls, you got a song or anything? I don't In the interest of moving us on, because it's time to go, uh, we're going to say a dead heat between three. Nikki, Toby and Stephanie. Round of applause. Thanks, everybody. See you at our next slam. Hi, I'm Zara, and you're listening to the Cicada Story Slam. The Cicada Story Slam is in a country town in Victoria named Dalsford. And it may be a small place, but the community and people are great. And I, if I don't say so myself, the stories are even better. I would like to acknowledge Annie Stewart and Maya Irel who made all this possible. And of course, everyone who helps out behind the scenes and you for listening. If you have a wild story and you're a part of our community, please feel free to come to the Cicada Story Slam and share your amazing stories because we'd love to hear them. And the story takes you there Don't know why, you don't know where But the story takes you there On a winter's day in June I take refuge from the gloom Pellegrini's Cafe, 8 a.m. Where the postcard's old and worn Their edges frayed and torn Paint pictures of a time way back when And the story takes you there You don't know where But the story takes Everybody's got a story they can tell Stories to make sense In this old world's defense Just make sure you say it well And the story takes you there You don't know why You don't know where are you strong enough to take that down and let the story take
Let the story take you there Let the story take you there 